Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Our text is Luke 3.23, Luke 3.23, and my question today is, will you join the cause of global missions? Luke 3.23 is a simple passage. It simply says Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry, and I know what you all are thinking, like, what does that have to do with gospel missions? It has everything to do with it, because this was a crisis, a crucial moment in Jesus' life where he had to make an important decision, and that's the important decision my beloved, we need to be making today. And incidentally, much of what I'm talking about today is in one of my books. It's called The Myth of Adolescence. And I have a chapter on Jesus in the age 12 transition and Jesus on the age 30 transition. We look at the two transitional stages in Jesus' life. And maybe the unique thing about that book was I take Jesus in his humanity as the model for the human developmental cycle. And when you do that, there are really only three stages of life. There's childhood, and then there's young adulthood, and then there's what I would call senior adulthood. There's childhood, but then Jesus at the age of 12 became a, go ahead and say the word, he became a man with all of the rights, privileges, and responsibilities pertaining thereto. And we don't accept that in our culture and even in our church culture. We tell our teenagers to go out and play till whatever they grow up, whenever that is, we don't know what that is. And shame on the body of Christ for marginalizing our teenagers. They're one of the most powerful groups in our church. And I argue in my book that teenagers ought to be on adult committees. They ought to be going on adult mission trips. They ought to be singing the adult choir. You know why? Because they are adults. They are young men and they are young women. And Jesus became a man at the age of 12, but he became a novice adult, a, what I call an emerging adult, a, a young adult. And he couldn't begin his ministry until he had achieved the age of 30, which is senior adulthood, because he didn't have enough life experience. He hadn't been through the crucible of enough years to lead anything. And so we want to talk about today specifically what I call the age 30 transition. And let me say something here. I'm going to be focusing today on the humanity of Christ. But when I do that, I don't want you to leave today thinking that Dave Black minimizes the deity of Christ. My beloved, is Jesus Christ God? Yes, absolutely. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.18, no man has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed Him. John 20.28, Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, Of whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Titus 2, 13, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 8, Unto the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And don't you ever, don't you ever minimize the complete 100% deity of Christ, but at the same time, don't you ever minimize the 100% humanity of Jesus. Don't you take the manure out of the manger. Don't you pretend that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. At the incarnation, God had a navel. God had two lungs. God had a beard that sprouted. God had legs that grew. And the Bible says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And even Hebrews 5, 8 says that the Son, the Son, the Son of God learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So even though I'm focusing today on the humanity, I'm not trying to minimize nor are we at Southeastern Seminary trying to minimize in any way, shape, or form the complete deity of Christ. Well, have you found Luke 3.23 yet? I'm ready to teach. Are you ready to listen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we live in a world that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. We live in a society that places eternal value on temporal things and temporal value on eternal things. We live in a selfless, self-centered, selfish Be me, I I get all you can, can all you get, kind of a culture that I believe has made us miserable. So I pray today 
that you would help us to recover a biblical priority system. You speak and help me get out of the way so that these, your people, may be encouraged and edified. And more than anything, you and you alone would be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. Luke 3.23 says this, And Jesus himself, when he was just getting started, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. That's what my Bible says. Does your Bible say something like this when Jesus was beginning his ministry? Do you have the words his ministry in your Bible? I, I hope those words are in italics because they're not in my Bible. My Bible simply says, says this, and Jesus himself, when he was just getting started, what do you mean Jesus is just, he's 30 years of age and he's just starting out? Yes, he is. There's something new happening, something fresh that's happening in his life. And that's what we want to talk about. I'm going to ask three questions today. What is the age 30 transition? Number two, what was, what was Jesus like at the age of 30 when he closed the door on his childhood home in Nazareth, never to go back, and he began his public ministry? And then thirdly, what does that teach us about our Christian walk with Christ today? The age 30 transition, what is it? By the way, I had never heard of this transition until I was living in Israel. I graduated from the University of Basel in 1983 with my doctorate, and two years later I went to Israel to study at Jerusalem University College, and I was taking classes there, and it occurred to me one day I was walking down the dusty roads of Jerusalem that I was living and eating and breathing and moving in Jerusalem at the same physical, emotional, and psychological age that Jesus was when he died for our sins. I was 33 and a half years of age, and I said, Lord, if there's something in this age 23 thing that I need to learn. I want to learn it now. And so I began to ask the question, what is the age 30 transition? And by the way, what I'm about to say, I'm indebted to uh, authors like Eric Erickson and Jean Piaget and Kohlberg and Miller. And Daniel Levinson wrote a wonderful book called Seasons of a Man's Life. I encourage you to read that book. So what is the age 30 transition? Listen carefully. Age, Eric Erickson says, we develop full manhood, full adulthood through two phases of life. The first phase of life is what he called a very exploratory phase of life. And many of you are in this phase right now. Life is very nebulous. Life is very uncertain. We're uncertain about our vocational identity. We're uncertain about our relational identity. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we are. And then he says, there's a settling down phase of life where we feel like for the first time in our lives, we have our feet firmly planted on the ground. We know what we are. We know who we are. And he said, between this exploratory phase of life and this settling down phase of life is a topsy-turvy crisis experience that occurred in the adult males that he interviewed about the age of 30. And therefore, he entitled it the age 30 transition. Now, what causes the age 30 transition? Eric Erickson, quote, the age 30 transition is nothing less than the dawning awareness of one's mortality and the realization that life is short. Let me repeat that. The age 30 transition is nothing less than the dawning awareness of your mortality and the realization that life is short and if we do not get serious about life, life will pass us by. When I learned that I was retiring this semester, the first thought that went through my mind is since when is Southeastern retiring 45-year-olds? <laughs> you know, I think I'm a 45-year-old trapped in the body of a 68-year-old and when I retire January 31st at the age of 69, I will have taught for 44 years. And I look back and say, where did those years go? <laughs> Wasn't it just yesterday I entered Bioni University, I went into the classroom in 1976 for the first time to teach 11 units of Greek, and those years are gone. Parents, they're young and then they're grown. It happens just that fast. So appreciate it while you can. I'll never forget when I first had that dawning awareness of my mortality. I was born and raised in Hawaii. My dad was born there in 1918, and all of us kids were hatched and raised on the island of Oahu. And I surfed, I surfed. 
on average, maybe about 365 days a year. And I, I surfed the North Shore, you know, 15-footers, 20, oh my goodness, 25-footers, Sunset Beach, Pipeline, Pupakea, Haleiwa, Makaha. Yeah, I was like the surfer dude, if you know what I'm talking about. I built three of my own surfboards, you know, and I sent out. Then I moved to California. I met Becky. We got married in Dallas. And of course, we did our honeymoon in Hawaii. And a couple more times, we went back to Hawaii. But I'll never forget when we took the kids for the first time to Hawaii to see where daddy grew up. And we went into my former house, we went into my former bedroom, and behind one of the doors there was one of my surfboards. And one of my kids said to me, now daddy, are you gonna show us what you've been bragging about all these many years? And almost without thinking, at that, that time the waves were really big, almost without thinking, I said, are you crazy? A guy could get killed doing that. I'm not gonna do something as stupid as that. Listen, when you're a 16 year old and you're surfing pipeline, Pupagay, Holly, and the waves are 20, 20, 25 feet, can you die? My mother used to say, honey, be careful. I said, be careful about what? When you're a 16-year-old, life is an endless highway. But now I was in my 30s, and I have a family to raise. I've got a wife to take care of. I've got books to write. I've got sermons to preach. I've got classes to teach. I have responsibilities. I'm not going to do something as stupid as go out and surf 25 boaters at Holly Eve, if you know what I'm saying. And Eric Erickson says, the age 30 transition is nothing less than the dawning awareness of your mortality. And if you are going to get serious about life, you better do it now, because guess what? It happens just that fast. By the way, in my book, I, I talk about the age 30 transition in many different cultures. Did you, have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They've been in the news lately, haven't they? The Essene of the Qumran community, to serve as a priest, you had to be 30. In the Old Testament, to serve as a priest, you had to be 30. According to 2 Samuel 5, 4, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 40 years. According to Ezekiel 1.1, 1, 1, Ezekiel received this prophecy in his 30th year. Joseph was made ruler over Egypt when he was, anybody want to guess, when he was 30 years of age. And incidentally, in the New Testament, there is a word that, that's used. Pastors is not used in the New Testament. That's a metaphor. The word that is used for church leaders is called elders. It doesn't mean an old man. It means an older man as opposed to what? Come on, as opposed to a younger man. There By the way, that's when I go to cultures, when I go to Africa, when I go to the Middle East, when I go to Asia... There are some cultures that actually respect age. Do you realize that? Our, our culture re respects youth. But when I, go, when I go into one of these cultures, I walk into the room, they go, who is this important guy? They don't know me from Adam. All they see is the gray hair, if you know what I mean. And in that culture, Jesus would have had, again, no credibility and no respect because he hadn't had enough age. He hadn't been through the crucible of living long enough to lead anything. <clears throat> And one more example that comes to my mind is in these United States, there's a scrap of paper that you may have briefly studied in the eighth grade. It's called the Constitution, like nobody pays much attention to it anymore. But in the Constitution, to be a senator, you have to be a certain age. Did you know that? And by the way, how many senators do we have in the United States? We have 320 million people and only 100. This is a very elite and important group of people. And incidentally, that word senator in Latin doesn't mean an old man. That's senex. A senator means an old, it's a comparative form. It means an older man as opposed to a what? Come on, as opposed to a younger man. And according to the Constitution of these United States, you have to be how old to be a senator. Anybody want to guess? You have to be 30. You say, I'm 29. I want to be a senator. They say, no. You say, that's age discrimination. No, it isn't. That's wisdom. And to be the president of these United States, you have to add Alan Mears. Come on. You have to be 35 years of age. So that's the age, that's the age 30 transition. <clears throat> Secondly, I want to ask this question. What was Jesus like here in Luke 3.23? At the age of 30, when he closed the door on his childhood home, never to go back. Do you remember when that happened to you? I remember it was 1971. I was 19. I was going to Biola to study. I was leaving Hawaii, and that at 747 took off from Honolulu Airport and rounded Diamond Hand and looked down at Kailua Beach, and I knew, I knew that when I came back that Christmas, 
it would never again be home, and it never was home again. Do you remember that? So what was Jesus like? And I'm going to go real quickly because my time is very limited. Number one, Jesus was the firstborn. I, I challenge you sometime, look up the article, Firstborn in the Bible Encyclopedia, and you will see that the eldest son in a Jewish family was a very important role. Why? Because he had so much what on his shoulders? So much responsibility. Any firstborns here? Huh? You know what I'm talking about. My wife, Becky, was the firstborn. In fact, she was the eldest of six children. Not only that, she grew up on the mission field in Ethiopia. So while mom and dad are at the mission station, Becky's at the boarding school taking care of her siblings. Let me ask you all this question. What kind of personality do you think Becky had? Do you think she was capable? Yes. Do you think she was organized? Yes. Do you think she had an I-can-do-anything attitude? Yes. Do you think the first thing she did when she woke up in the morning was write her list of things to do? Yes. Me, I'm the youngest of four, and where was I raised? Like, hang loose, brother. It isn't, isn't it interesting how opposites often attract? So Jesus is the firstborn. Number two, Jesus is the firstborn son in a large Jewish family. You say, wait a minute, Dr. Black, how do you know it was a large Jewish family? Well, the Bible tells us. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read that he had brothers and he had sisters. In fact, the brothers are named. He had four brothers. and he had. Now, they didn't name the girls because it was kind of a patriarchal society. But the brothers are named. And incidentally, the next oldest is named James. Have you heard of James? James wrote a book of the New Testament. And keep that little fact in the back of your mind because it's going to become very important in just a minute. So Jesus had at least two. It says sisters. So how many sisters did he have? At least two. Could have had three, four, five, or six. So Jesus had at least six siblings. He could have had seven, eight, nine, ten, or in Ethiopia. You go down countries, families have seven, eight, nine, or ten kids. Not that unusual. So Jesus is the eldest son in a large Jewish family. Number three, what was Jesus' occupation? He was a carpenter. No, I don't think so. I wouldn't translate that word that way. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate it for you. When Becky and I lived in California, we had a large deck built on our home. We didn't hire a carpenter. We hired a builder. Do you understand what I'm saying? We hired a, a contractor, and he came with his crew, and it took him longer than it should have, and it cost us more than it should have, but eventually we had a wonderful deck. That's, that's how I want you to think of this word. And incidentally, okay, here's something you don't know. The largest city in all of Galilee in that day was a city you've never heard of, and shame on us so-called New Testament scholars for never telling you about this. The largest city in all of Galilee was not the little sleepy hollow of Nazareth, population 400, it was the city they've excavated. It's called Sephoris. Sephoris. It was a teeming, hustling, bustling city with thousands and thousands of people. It was a Greek-speaking city. It was a Hellenistic-speaking. And by the way, it was Herod Antipas' capital city. And if there's one thing we know about Herod, he liked to do what? He liked to build. So he's building the racetrack over there. He's building the gymnasium over there. He's building the bath over there. He's building the government offices over there. He's building the schools over there. He liked to build. And Richard Beatty, in his book, Jesus and the Forgotten City, by the way, the library has a copy, Jesus and the Forgotten City says he could easily envisage mom packing the lunches and dad and the boys going to where the work is. You may live in Kitchell, but you work in Wake Forest, right? Or you may work in work first. You have to go to Raleigh to work. You go wherever the work is. And here's my point, my beloved. I don't want us to think of Jesus as necessarily coming from the lowest of the lowest class of society, merely hammering out yoke for oxen in the sleepy hollow of Nazareth. I believe he and his dad and his brothers had a fairly lucrative middle-class construction business, and they were probably making some big money under government contracts in the big city of Sephoris. I have a good friend, George Wesley Buchanan, taught at Wesley Seminary. He wrote an article on 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was what? Rich, yet he became what? Poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. George Wesley Buchanan actually took that literally. He says, Jesus, actually, when he left 
his family behind. He, he left the fatted calf. He left a fairly lucrative business behind when he began his public ministry. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what that verse is referring to. I believe it's referring to Jesus leaving all of the worship of all of the angels from all of eternity to come to this earth to die on a stinking, filthy, rotten, bloody Roman cross because he loved us more than he loved other people. But I believe there's an element of truth in that. So what was Jesus' occupation? He was a builder. So Jesus is the eldest son in a large Jewish family. He was a builder. Number four, was Jesus married? 1971, William Phipps wrote two books, Was Jesus Married and the Sexuality of Jesus. He argued that Jesus was married. He argued that Jesus had to be married because human sexuality is part of the warp and woof of our human existence. So for Jesus to be fully man, he had to have been married. And then, of course, Dan Brown comes along later with the Da Vinci Code and tells us that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and to, together they sired a son. Oh, my goodness. If there's one thing we can be absolutely sure about is that Jesus was never married. The silence of Scripture here is literally deafening. But listen to me, my beloved. The question would not have been, hey, hey, Jesus, you're 30, you're still single. What's the matter with you, buddy? Come on, get alive. The question would have been, hey, Joseph, what's wrong with you? You have failed in what? You have failed in your parental responsibility to find a wife for your eldest son. The Talmud says this, quote, it is the responsibility of a father in relation to his son to circumcise him, to redeem him, to teach him Torah, to teach him a trade, and to find him a wife. Let me repeat that. It is the responsibility of a father, not a mother, a father in relationship to a son to circumcise him, to redeem him, to teach him Torah. That means teach him the Bible, to teach him a, a, a trade, and to find him a wife. By the way, that's not where the quote ends. You want to know where the quote really ends? It says, and some say to teach him how to swim too. I like that part. You know, 19 years in Hawaii, 27 years in California, I was a lifeguard, I was a swimming instructor, and then 23 years ago, God plucked us up from Southern California and moved us to the tobacco fields of Granville County, North Carolina. I joined the volunteer fire department. If you're a man in Granville County, you joined the volunteer fire department. And I can't tell you how many times we, had to, we were called to sweep ponds to find the bodies of adult males who drowned because they didn't know how to. Like I thought everybody knew how to swim. Now, let me ask you this question. Was Jesus circumcised? Oh, yes, on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses. By the way, that's when he was given his name. What does Yehoshua mean? What does that mean? The Lord is what? Salvation. And by the way, I've documented my book, Jesus, Yehoshua, Joshua. Everybody wanted to be called Josh in the first century. It's probably the third or fourth most common name in, um, in that society. But what made the naming of this Jesus different was not only would his name mean the Lord is salvation, but for the first time in human history, this child is the Lord who saves. Boy, I get goosebumps just thinking about that. Number two, was Jesus redeemed? Yet on the 40th day, the Bible says in Luke, they took him to the temple and they redeemed him. Number three, was Jesus taught the Bible? Oh my goodness, so well was he taught the Bible that the ripe old age of 12, the seminary professors are asking him questions. Number four, did Jesus, was Jesus taught a trade? Yes, he was a builder. Number five, was Jesus married? And the answer is no. But the question would not have been, hey, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Come on, man. The question would have been, hey, Joseph, what's wrong with you? You have failed in your parental responsibility to find a wife for your eldest son. And I've got to pause here because I believe something very significant happens in Jesus' life at this point. I believe at this point, Joseph dies. Joseph dies. You say, why do you believe that? Because did you know this? Joseph is missing from all of the gospel accounts of Jesus' public ministry, right? We read about his mother, we read about his brothers, we read about his sisters, but we don't read about Joseph. And may I suggest to you, when Joseph died, that would have been nothing than traumatic for Jesus because, because, my beloved, upon whose shoulders at that point would have come all the weight of all of the responsibility 
to care for his deceased father's family, to care for his widowed mother, to care for the business, to care for the siblings on Jesus' shoulders. Marvin Eisenstadt, an American psychologist, wrote an article called Parental Loss and Genius. He said the loss of one or both parents when you're a child is nothing less than traumatic, either through death or divorce. And he says some children respond in one or two ways. Some children are crushed by that experience. They're broken for life. They can, never, they can never adapt to that experience. They are crushed, they are broken, they are ruined. But he said other children going through a process of creative mourning, I love that expression, creative mourning, become a better person, a more capable person, a more resilient person had they not lost one or both of their parents through death or divorce in childhood. And so here is Jesus. He's now the head of his deceased father's family. And all of a sudden, what does he do? What does he do? One day, he leaves all that behind, and he goes off and, and is baptized and begins his ministry. Now listen, you have to see it from their perspective. We understand. We know what's going on. Jesus is obeying God. Jesus, Jesus is obeying the will of God. For what was Jesus' mission in life? Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to what? Came to what? He came to operate a lucrative contracting company. He came to what? Come on, seek and to save that which was, that's our job. That's his job. But they didn't see it that way. All they saw was Jesus, the eldest son in a large family who's now responsible for the family. And one day he gets up and follows the crazy man. That's who they thought John was. The crazy man down in the Jordan River Valley. And then he goes off and he does his own thing. He shirks his responsibility. And as a result, I believe they were angry toward him. I believe they were bitter toward him. Do you know the Bible says they thought he was what? They thought he was crazy. <laughs> and by the way, at that point, guess upon whose shoulders now all the weight of responsibility falls? His name is what? James. But that, by the way, that's not the end of the story. Oh, God is so good. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 15, remember after the resurrection? It says, he appeared unto, come on, James. He made a beeline for his brother James, and James looks at Jesus. Now I know you're the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, and I believe he's gloriously converted. It gets better. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, on the upper room, we have 120 people waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Guess who's there? 114, it says this. Mary is there, Jesus' mother, and then add an S, Jesus' brothers. I think James led all of his brothers to Christ. But until that time, I, thought they were, I think they were bitter toward him. They were angry toward him. And that leads me to my third and final point. What does this mean for us today? Let me give you my definition of the age 30 transition. It's not... Eric Erickson's, it's not Jean Piaget's, it's not Kohlberg's, it's not Miller's, it's not Daniel Evans's, it's mine. Listen carefully. The age 30 transition, my beloved, is nothing less than a radical transformation from things which are physical to things which are spiritual. It is nothing less than a radical transformation of priorities from things which are temporal to things which are eternal. And then listen finally, because some of you, this is going to be the greatest challenge of all. It is nothing less than a radical transference of priorities from your earthly family to your spiritual family. You say, Dr. Black, can you prove that? I believe I can. The Bible says after Jesus has begun his ministry, he's sitting in his house in Capernaum. It's not actually his. It was Peter and Andrew's house. I've stood in it. They've excavated it. And you remember, he's sitting around with his disciples. There's a knock on the door. Jesus, your mother, your brothers and sisters, they're calling for you. Do you remember that? May I say to you, the law of God would have required Jesus to stand up from where he was and to go out to his mother. For doth not the scripture say, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. But you remember what Jesus said? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? They're the ones who hear the word of God and put it into practice. And he never went. He never stood up and he never went out. Listen to me. Listen to me. We have to, we, the question I'm asking today is a simple one. 
What is your passion in life? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What puts you to bed at night? What are you living for? What are you willing to die for? As Danny Aiken says, if your mission is not the Great Commission, you're living for the wrong mission. And we have to follow that will of God for our life. Even if, listen to me, even if that means risking alienation and misunderstanding from the people who are closest to us, our very family. As Danny said, my, my favorite chapel service is our commissioning service. And that'll happen next week. And the two plus students will come up here, some of them with little infants in their arms, and Danny will play a wonderful prayer that God would bless them and God would prosper them and God would protect them and God would make them fruitful. Almost without exception, I know many of these students, almost without exception, you ask them, for where does the greatest opposition come to you going abroad? Some of them are going to countries, I can't even pronounce their names. They're dangerous. They're security three-level countries. And almost without exception, they say from grandma and grandpa. Grandma and grandpa. Grandpa says, how... How, how, how dare you do this? How can you expose my grandson to that kind of danger? How, how dare you rob me of the joy of watching my grandson grow up? I don't understand you. You are crazy. Well, I understand them because they've made this radical transference of priorities. And I want to ask you this question. What are you living for? I will say, to my shame, if you go to my website and read only one article, there's hundreds there, but read A Great Commission Marriage because Becky and I didn't always have A Great Commission Marriage. Vicki and I, we lived for ourselves. We lived for the perfect family. We, we had the perfect agrarian lifestyle. We were homeschooling. I was writing my books. I was establishing my reputation as a great Greek scholar. Huh? For us, missions was Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. That's all it was. But then we realized that when Jesus said go, he said, Dave, go. Becky, go. And folks, we got to stop outsourcing missions. My booklet, which will be available, will you join the cause? of global missions. Danny, when I preach in churches, I often introduce myself as a full-time missionary. They say, wait a minute, I thought you were a professor of Greek. I say, yes, that's my job, but it's not my business. I am in the gospel business 24-7, 365, and so are you if you're an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerry, Jerry Rankin, about 15 years ago, spoke in chapel. I'll never forget it. He was the president of the IMB at that time. We had 5,500 missionaries with the IMB. We had 16.2 million Southern Baptists. And he talked about those missionaries. He said, thank God for every one of them. But then he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, you know what those missionaries represent of Southern Baptists? Not 1%, not 0.1%, 0.003% of us Southern Baptists are missionaries. Folks, we ain't going to get the job done that way. And then through a work of grace in my marriage, Becky and I began to ask ourselves this question, what is the best use of our time? What is the best use of our energy? What is the best use of our resources? What is the best use of our vacations? And the best thing that ever happened to Becky and me is we stopped being good Christians and we began to try to be obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2004, Becky being the third culture kid. Anybody married to a third culture kid? Oh my goodness, they are special. <laughs> they are special. And Becky said, honey, to understand me, you've got to go to Ethiopia. And I said, yes, yeah, so let's go. I was on sabbatical. And we went for six weeks to Ethiopia. Never intending to go back, but we just wanted to visit. And I'll never forget going down to southern Ethiopia to Burji, where Becky was raised, and seeing the house that her daddy built. It's now dilapidated and deserted. To see where Becky was raised and see all the wonderful people that she knew. And I'll never forget, we got to Addis Ababa. The second night we were in Addis Ababa. We were going to bed. I laid my head on the pillow, and I said to Becky, Honey, I love these people so much, it hurts. And that was the first of 17 trips I made to Ethiopia. I got into the gospel business. Thir 17 trips to Ethiopia, 13 trips to Central Asia, three to Ukraine, three to Armenia, six to South Korea, two to the Middle East, one to Romania, one to India. And I'm not special. Talk to Ben Merkel, who takes teams to Malaysia. 
Talk to Ann Greenham, who goes to the Middle East. Oh, how about this? How about this? Do you remember a few years ago there were 54 nations in Africa, and then all of a sudden there was 55? What was the name of the new one? South Sudan. Do you remember that? South Sudan. And the very year South Sudan was formed, guess who was there? Danny Aiken. Because Danny Aiken doesn't just say this is a great commission seminary. He leads by example. And by the way, what a novel idea of a seminary that we're all about what? Not about academics. By the way, we have good academics here, but it's not about academics. It's about putting, leveraging all that for something more important than academics. And our motto is true. Every classroom is a great commission. My Greek classes are great commission. Everything's about the gospel. And you can talk to Tracy McKenzie. His Hebrew classes are all about the great commission. And John Hammond's theology classes are all about the great commission. That's what we're all about. Why would you want to come here for any other reason? We are great commission seminary. And I wrote that article, A Great Commission Marriage. Let me tell you something if you're married. If you live for marital happiness, you will be miserable. But if you begin to learn for some, to live for something bigger than yourselves, you'll never be happier. And I just hope and pray you won't have to wait as long as Becky and I did to learn that lesson. <clears throat> and so now Jesus is living for the gospel. And, 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 but he had to make this transition. He had to make this decision to leave behind and to risk, listen to me, to risk misunderstanding and alienation. And as a catalyst to help him do that, look at verse 22. The Bible says when he comes out of the water, Mark says when he immediately came out of the water, what happens? He hears a voice. Whose voice is that? The Father's voice. So what does the Father say? By the way, remember verse 23 says, Jesus is supposedly the son of whom? Joseph. Here's what the Father says. Here's what he says. My paraphrase. You are not Joseph's son. You are my son. And son, what you just did made me so proud. Folks, the only person you need to please is your daddy. You don't have to please your mom, your dad, your spouse, your seminary professor. You please the father. And when your, fa when your family comes to you all freaking out, like they did in Luke chapter 2 to Jesus, right? Son, how can you do this to us? We were worried sick about you. We don't understand you. All you have to do is say calmly and respectfully, like Jesus did to his parents, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And as a catalyst to help Jesus make this radical transformation of priorities, he hears the Father from heaven saying, you're my son, and son, I love you. And what you just did made me so very happy. And then Jesus begins his ministry, right? Nope, 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 nope. The Bible says the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be what? To be tested. You say, tested as to what? I'll tell you. Tested as to his powers as the Son of God. I'm not Joseph's son. I'm God's son. And so after 40 days of testing, Satan comes up to him. What's the first words out of Satan's mouth? You're God's son, right? You're God's son, right? You haven't eaten for 40 days, right? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you starving? Come on, you're God's son. Just say the word bread. Remember Jesus' response? Do you remember how he defined the age 30 transition? There's nothing less than a radical transference of priorities from things which are physical to things which are spiritual. Here's what he said. My paraphrase. Yes, Mr. Satan, I am hungry. In fact, I'm starving to death. I haven't eaten in 40 days. But let me tell you something, buddy. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and Jesus remain hungry. God has put it into our physical bodies right here. I think I'm the only one who's ever said this. I've never heard it said, but this is the way I put it. God has put it into our physical bodies right here three times a day. If you have sons, six times a day. 
into our physical bodies three times a day. Whenever you feel hungry, whenever you hear that gurgling, oh, I'm starting to hear some gurgling going on out there. I think some of you are getting hungry. Whenever we get hungry, here's what God wants us to remember. My beloved man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And yet we feed our faces three times a day, but our spirits go hungry. You know why? Because we've never made this radical transformation of our priorities. Until Jesus passes the test, and he fulfilled his calling, his ministry in life. And I would say with you, with Jim Elliott, wherever you are, class, my beloved, be all there. Live to the hilt whatever you are convinced is the will of God for your life. This semester, my last semester, I'm teaching six in-person classes. I've never done that. My teaching load is three. But they say, would you teach this? I said, sure. Would you teach that? Yeah, why not? And then I was contacted by the only accredited Bible college in Israel. Say, we need someone to teach Greek. Would you please teach it for us? And of course, I told them, well, I'm too busy. I'm already teaching. I didn't say that. I said, absolutely. Of course, I'll teach it for you. Teaching seven classes this semester. I didn't even have to pray about it. I just do it. Why not? This is what you live for. This is what drives you. This is your pleasure. This is your joy. You say, are you busy? Yes, but let me tell you this. Yes, I am busy. Yes, I work hard. Yes, I have a 123-acre farm. Yes, I'm about to get to up 200 acres. Of here, but let me tell you something. When you are doing what God created you to be and to do, there's a joy. There's a power. There's a passion. There's an enthusiasm. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So what are we complaining about if we're in the center of God's will? And I want to ask you this question. Have you ever made this radical transformation? You say, I'm a seminary student. I don't care. You could be like Becky and me. You could just be a good Christian. Listen to me, 20-somethings, 30-somethings. Love is not sex. Wealth is not money. Relationship is not religion. Faithfulness is not success. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or maybe I'll put it this way. You will never be content with what you have until you are at peace with who you are. You will never be content with what you have until you are at peace with who you are, and you will never be at peace with yourself until Jesus is the complete Lord of your life and you're living for something bigger than yourselves. I conclude with a true story. Let me just take you to Ethiopia here. On many times, we went down to Burji in Ethiopia, and uh, here are the elders of the church. I don't know if you can see them. Here's the elders of the church in Burji. These men knew Becky when she was a child. Oh, what a joy it was to see these men. And by the way, Bicky and I are not with any, uh, you know, we're not with the IMB or we're not with Samaritan's Purse. We're not with World Vision. We're just mom and dad. We're just, we're just Becky and me. And we go to southern Ethiopia. We come alongside the church and say, how can we help y'all? But we're not mavericks. We work everywhere we go. We work under the authority of the local church elders. And here are the elders. One day we got down to Burji. We met with Ake. Here's Sister Ake. Now, you have to realize something about the Burji tribe. The Burji is one of 85 major people groups in Ethiopia. They speak Virginia and Alaba. They speak Alabinian. Oromo, they speak Orima, Orumina. But down in Burji, where Becky was raised, it's a very peaceful tribe. It's a very peace-loving tribe. But the tribe next to it is not so much that way. And for generations, this other tribe has just been murdering Burjis for no apparent reason at all. And so we got to Burji one day, and we went out to visit Ake. That day, she had been just minding her own business in her field when she was shot by one of these other tribesmen. And so we went to pray with her, and the next day she went home to be with the Lord. And so the Lord said to me, Dave, I want you to go to evangelize this other tribe. The last two evangelists to go there, Guyo and Guba, were both murdered, but the Lord said, I want you to go. So I said, yes. And the next slide, you can see Jason, one of my elders, went with me. There's Jason. By the way, Jason is a graduate of our seminary. He has a Ph.D. in biblical preaching from our seminary. He said, he's one of my three elders. He said, I'll go with you, Dave. But we needed a translator. And nobody would, nobody would volunteer because it was too dangerous. 
Then all of a sudden, this one young man named James stood up. He says, I will go and be your translator. James was 24 years old. James had just graduated from the university. James had his whole life ahead of him. And he said, I'll go and be your translator. We said, James, are you aware of the danger? He said, yes, but the Lord Jesus has told me to go and be your translator. And so off we went. We began, the three of us began to trek among this other tribe. We entered one of the villages there, and the first village we entered, they have a tradition in this I've never seen before, but they don't drink coffee, they eat coffee. <laughs> they gave me a coffee cup full of about 45 roasted coffee beans, and I was expected to, of course, eat it, which, of course, I did. <laughs> it was hard. And notice James, he's bent over with laughter watching me suffer. He's having a good time. <clears throat> By the way, when I got back to the States, Danny, I wrote an article on my website called Eat, Heal, and Tell. Eat, Heal, H-E-A-L, and Tell. Eat, Heal, and Tell. And what's going on there? Well, in Luke 10, 8, you know what Jesus said? Whatever village you enter, eat whatever's offered you. Number two, heal the sick. And number three, then tell them the kingdom of heaven is, head, is at hand. So that's the order. What do, you mean, what do you mean by eat? What are you doing when you eat? You're identifying with the people. You're not over the people. You're not beyond the people. You're not looking down on the people. You're just trying to be one of the people. And then the next slide here says, this is the next step, which is, which is heal. Now, I'm not a faith healer. I can't put my hands on you and go healed. But I am a farmer. I'm a poor dirt farmer trying to eke out a living, and so are they. So every village I met with the mayor, there's the mayor of that little village there, and there are all the farmers standing around, and I gave them a, a bag of high-protein bean seeds. They had never seen bean seeds before. Oh, my, were they happy. And then he distributed them, and then what's the next step? The next step is tell. And all the village gathers together to find out, who are these Ferengis? That's what they call foreigners. Who are these Ferengis? And out of curiosity, now the whole village is there, and you just share with them the love of Jesus. Do you see James, my translator, there? After about seven days, after we had maybe visited three or four villages, the elders of the church in Burgi said, you come out now. So many Burgis were being killed. They said, it's too dangerous for you to stay. You come I didn't want to leave. Well, I didn't want to leave. But remember, we work under the authority of the local church. And when they said, you come out, we said, yes, sir. And Jason and I came out. We, we came back to the States. And about a month later, we got an email from James. And all it said was this. They're looking for me. They're looking for me, which means they're hunting me down. They're, that tribe was hunting for me to kill me because I had served as your translator. And James went to the big city of Shashamani to try to hide itself in its anonymity. And about a week later, we got word that they had found him. They had suffocated him in his sleep. And James was the first martyr of our work in Ethiopia. And you know when I thought about James, you know what I thought about in the book of Philippians chapter 2, a guy named Epaphro. Didus. Remember how he was sent by the Philippian church to bring a monetary gift, but also to minister to Paul? And remember, he got sick. Remember, in serving Paul, he got really, really sick, almost died. But Paul said, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have grief upon grief. And then he says this, I want you to honor men like that, because for the sake of the gospel, he was willing to what? The word is gamble, risk, everything for the cause of the gospel. And I want to ask you this question to, this morning. What are you willing to live for and die for? What is it costing you to be a follower of Jesus? If it's not costing you anything, you may be a good Christian, but you're not a disciple. I get these emails like you do from your nieces and nephews. I'm going to Guatemala this summer, or I'm going to Haiti. I need $2,500 for my mission trip. You ever get those? And I write back and say, honey, that's wonderful, but I'm not going to give you a penny. Here's what I say. Literally, I say this. I'm not going to give you a penny, but I will match up to $1,000 whatever you give from your savings. If you give a dollar from your savings, I'll give you a dollar. If you give a thousand, I'll give you a thousand. But if it's not costing you anything, it's not discipleship. Because discipleship is always costly. What is your passion in life? What do you live for? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What puts you to bed at night? If your mission is not the Great Commission, you're living 
for the wrong mission. I have a booklet here. I want you to pick up a copy when you leave today. Will you join the cause of global missions? The last page is a place you can sign your, your life away. Don't sign it unless you mean it because it will change everything in your life. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us take a moment of quiet reflection upon what Jesus is teaching us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a good and gentle shepherd. You never shove us, you never push us. You lead us, you guide us, and, and you nudge us from where we are to where we ought to be. And Father in heaven, I pray if there's anyone here today who makes, needs to make this radical transition, that they would go to you sometime today, not in shame, but in great victory, and say from now on, I'm going to live for something bigger than myself, bigger than my marriage, bigger than my family. I'm going to have a great commission when marriage, I'm going to have a great commission family. I'm going to have a great commission church, and we're going to have a great commission denomination that nothing will divide us. I'm not interested in politics. I don't care who you voted for, and you will never know who I did because that's not the issue. The one thing that will unite us is the cause of causes. And so I ask you today, my beloved, will you join, if you haven't already, the cause of global Missions. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you do the hard work. I've done the easy work. I've spoken from the mouth to the ear, but now, Holy Spirit, you have to do the much more difficult work and speak from the ear to the heart, to the will, to the hands and the feet. We pray that you would do that and you would get all of the glory for every decision that is made today. For this we humbly ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.